Said he trying to find no motive. Find the one I hold. The freedom ain't getting no closer. No matter how far I go, my car is stolen. The registration cost controlling. But still they got me and I get locked up. And the WBA Super, I think. What's he doing here? I don't care about strong. I have that skills. And he threw them down. Skills win boxing. Why? You're not strong. How did you beat me? I'm not sure his team understood him. Let's do this. Let's do this. I had character. Let's do determination. Let's Understand the passion. I ain't no amateur boxer from five years old that was an elite prospect from my youth, bro. I was going to jail. I see some high local youths in Reading jail. I got bail and I started training my ass off. Because if I got sentenced, I wanted to be able to fight. I bust my case. My cousin Benga, where's he at? G14, raise your hand. Well, welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where. Eddie Hearn has finally become the person he used to take the piss out of. And it's sad to see, but fantastic to watch. Welcome back, guys. Um, forgive me if my voice is terrible. Been ill the last couple of days. So, yeah, fresh off the sick bed, shivering and sweating at the same time. But, hey, the content machine has to keep going, right? I wanted to start off, as everyone should, with Fury versus Chisora. The good thing about it was... The in-ring action kind of went as people thought. There's no real tactical insight. There was no real magic in there. It was just big, tall lump battering short, big lump. That was it, really. And that's okay. Um, but there were a number of things that came out of that that probably are worth a discussion. And, you know, let's go back to the genesis of it. And I always go back to this question. Was it a good fight? Because if you go back to when the fight was announced and people are like, why the hell are we watching the third installment of this where we know how the other two went? And the second fight was quite nauseating to watch. And then we went through that analysis and we said, well, who could Fury fight? Um, never felt Joshua was right mentally after that Usyk loss. Always felt that he'd need at least six months away from the game before he even thought about, you know, restarting his combat career, right? Because he looked broken. After that, that outburst, you normally need some time to to let whatever pressures that were in you just come out, right? So realistically, as much as we looked forward to the idea of it, that wasn't going to happen. Wilder fought Hellenius, was it October 15th? So that takes two big guys out of the picture. He already fought Dillian in April, so he's out of the picture. Uh, Fury was never going to fight Parker, and Joyce dealt with Parker anyway, so they were already out the picture. So the question was, who could Fury fight before the end of the year that would give him the opportunity to shake off some ring rust? Now, in the old days, if you go back to the the 70s or whatever, you might have done an eight or a 10 rounder on, on someone else's show as an undercard fight. But the Fury business model, the revenue model, isn't going to allow that. So it had to be someone with name brand value to, to sell out a stadium fight because I'm sure people need to be paid back and paid back in a hurry. So they gave us Chisora. And he was kind of the best of the rest in terms of name brand value. 
And I know people go, oh God, but he's, he's not that good. No, but in London, in North London, he can move units because people know who he is. Casuals know who he is. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't dig someone up like... Even Jermaine Franklin, who fought Dillian White, he can walk around London now. No one knows who the hell he is. And so this is a damning indictment because we've now had two... Yeah, we've had two Olympic cycles since Joshua won his gold. Uh, 2016, Joker, Joyce, Hergovic were the standout names, right? None of those three fought for a world title. Joe's the closest. The other two, in terms of ability, are miles off. But in terms of opportunity, maybe closer than we think. But we failed, haven't we? We failed to create new heavyweight stars. We failed to create the next name to get excited about. It should have been Joker. It isn't. It should be Joe, but Joe's 37 headed towards 38. So we haven't got much time left for Joe. So I'm not taking shots at Joe. This is this is prime time for Joe. But you get the feeling that Joe Fury, Joshua Wilder will all kind of exit the sport at the same time. Who's next? Hergovic isn't young and he's had a lot of miles because he's had, he had a long amateur career. Guys like Parker, we don't care about. So then we look at sort of Dubois. And we'll talk about him later, but he's on that list. Um... Jared Anderson over in the States, he's on that list. The the kid Jalilov, who won the Olympic gold, is on that list. As much as I like Richard Torres, I always feel he's a bit too small for a heavyweight. But, but these aren't names that scream at you. They're names where you kind of nod and go, yeah, okay. I think they'd be in good heavyweight fights. But they're not names that scream at you. So we failed to create that new wave of heavyweights to get excited about. And the main reason is boxing politics. These belts have been tied up so many different ways by so many different people that the velocity of fights has slowed down because everyone's waiting. Everyone's positioned, parked up, waiting. The best thing that could happen for boxing, if we're being honest, is that the belts get scattered again, like properly scattered and we just start again. Yeah. Fury and Usa can always fight for whatever. But the belts have to get scattered soon. And I think when they do that, we will start to build stars again. Because as things stand like the heavyweight division, after this wave, the Fury, Wilder, Joshua, Usyk wave, it feels a bit flat. We'll go back to the welterweights or the middleweights again, won't we? Like we did last time when we all went towards Mayweather Pacquiao. Because Vlad was just boring us to death. So Fury's not really swimming in a very deep pool. And so this harms his legacy because when people try and put him as the greatest heavyweight of all time, I stand on this and I'm willing to die on this hill. If he fought Lennox Lewis 10 times, Lennox Lewis would beat him 10 times. Yeah. And I know I'm going to get the the Fury cult going at me saying I'm absolutely crazy for saying this, but I'm not. If Wilder can land on Fury's chin, Lennox can land on Fury's chin. Let's not even debate that point. If Wilder can put Fury down, Lennox can. I just believe Lennox can do more. He could do more. He'll get hit with less. And I think he can take better shots than Wilder could. And he was in tough. Let's not forget that. So Fury swimming in this really shallow, shallow pool of talent. 
And he picks Chisora because he was always going to give him that payday. We've known this for years. They're friends and they understand the game. And you could see in the ring. Fury went hard. Like people talk about Fury babied him. No, 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 no. You saw Chisora's face. Um, that was a hard fight. That was a very, very hard fight. That was a pretty stiff fight. It's just that Fury didn't have the killer instinct. He was just able to play with him. And I think there was a point, it might have been round four, round five, where you saw Fury just go for a walk and he let Derek recover. And then went back at it again and he periodically let Derek recover. Sometimes he'd look over to Derek's corner like, guys, he doesn't need this. You know, and he's you know, giving the referee every opportunity to go, right, stop the fight. So I don't think the fight was fixed because I don't think Chisora stood a chance of winning. Um, Fury knows him too well. You know, he, he could read, you know, when Chisora throws those big hooks, he could just read the setup and he just took a step back or took a step in, made sure he was covered, bang. He was comfortable. You know, so then we talk about what should Chisora's corner have done in that fight? Should they have pulled him out? It's tricky. I've seen bits of the relationship between Don and Derek, but I haven't seen the full depth of it because I wasn't there at the beginning. But I've heard how Don speaks of Derek. He, he sees Derek as a son. And that's what makes their relationship tricky because Don's got that kind of paternal view, whereas Derek's more like this is a business arrangement. And just go back to when Mark Breeden pulled Wilder out of the Fury fight. And their relationship was never the same after that. In fact, it turned acrimonious. Don would have seen that and gone, I don't need that. I'm sure he would have spoken to Derek and Derek would have said, let the referee stop it. Do not pull me out of a fight again. Because he did it last time. And I imagine that's what Chisora was saying back to Don. So your gut feeling is you're watching a fight and you're watching Chisora's face get swelled up and bruised up. And you're saying to yourself, just pull him out. right? Pull him out. You're not going to win this fight. It's not close. Derek's nearly 39. You know, we're risking permanent damage here, right? But maybe Don knows how tough Derek is. Maybe Don knows that Derek wanted to, to do this his way. I don't know. What I do know is De Don Charles is the father of a heavyweight boxer. So Don in his head has wrestled with this dilemma. When would I pull someone out? If it was my son taking that beating, would I pull him out? Would I feel differently if it was my son versus if it was Derek? And as you think about that more and more, I think you just arrive at the same principle. I'll pull anyone out when I feel their life is in danger. And I don't believe Derek's life was in danger because that's Fury in there. Fury's not going to put his own friend's life in danger. Now, I think Wilder would have been a, a different proposition. You'd have had to stop the fight. Because I don't think I don't think Wilder's got those gears that Fury's got. So Fury's got gears. Like he will he can box to your level. And then if he needs to, he can box to his own level. So I think they generally thought, right, this is this is just a sparring session in ten ounce gloves. Derek will be fine tomorrow. And I, I imagine Derek was fine the next day. So yes, I would have stopped the fight earlier, but I can understand why Don wouldn't. You know, in terms of the ref, different question. I don't know what the ref was seeing. But maybe he was seeing that, you know, maybe Derek was saying to him, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And the ref said, okay, you're fine. Let you go out on your shield. 
until it got to a point where you're like, you're not saying the same things to me anymore. I think it's time I, I stopped the fight. So yeah, I'm sympathetic to, to both sides of the argument, but I'm just saying before people criticize Don Charles, just remember he would have thought about these situations longer and harder than you. So what he did in that corner wasn't negligent. It would have been the end process of a lot of thought and a lot of discussion with people. That's what I'd say. You know, he's got to preserve that relationship with Derek because he will hopefully be there after Derek's finished boxing. A lot of us won't be. But here's what's crazy. You had, I think it was Caldwell, who ironically hadn't seen the fight, but they were asking him questions about, do you think the stoppage should have happened earlier? And I'm like, well, Caldwell hasn't seen the fight. He just told you he hasn't watched it. Why is he even talking about it? And then he was talking about, oh, well, you know, there were some years where Don Charles didn't train Derek. And it's like, yeah, because you were DMing Derek saying you're better than Don Charles. So yeah, of course there are years when Derek went elsewhere, partly because of what you were doing, Dave Caldwell. Do you know what I mean? <sighs> Boxing never ceases to amaze me. But inside the sum total is, no matter who the experts think they are, I don't believe you would have had more available information for that decision-making process than Don Charles. I don't believe you would have. And if Don thought Derek was okay, then Derek was probably okay. Now, do I think Derek will be able to tie his shoelaces when he's 50? I don't know, man. I don't know. I want him to be able to. I also want to know that he's got money and things, that he never has to fight past 40, 41. That's what I really want to know. Because you're a long time retired. And you're generally forgotten when you're retired because we focus on the next shiny, cool, new thing, don't we? And whatever that will be, that will be. But you'd like to feel that, you know, Derek will be able to provide for his family well into old age. And then we just we just see him as that lovable character, you know, almost like a British Mike Tyson where he has this renaissance in his life where he becomes more of an entertainer, you know, make get his own TV show, his own podcast. I think that would be quite interesting, actually, to hear you know, how does the mind of Derek Chisora actually work? So in amongst all of this, I had this question, and I'll, I'll put it to all of you guys. Is Derek Chisora the most deserving person to never win a world title? I mean, you look at the guy, I don't know how many fights he's had, is it? He's had about 45 fights, hasn't he? Like 40-something? And in and amongst those, you've got names like Hay, Klitschko, Usyk, Hellenius, White. Now you've got Fury. Um, you can go down that list that he's got. And there are, Pulev's in there as well. And probably a better version of Pulev than Joshua fought. But there's all of this quality in the names that he's faced and you look at the performances out of some split decision losses some courageous performances and you look at other people who have held world titles um chagayev lucas brown etc and you go how the hell has derek never held a meaningful belt and it may be that whole rowdy roddy piper paradox right where they always used to say why didn't roddy piper get the world title as a wrestler? And the answer was he didn't need it. He wouldn't, make more, he wouldn't make any more money as a world champion as he would as Roddy Piper. And maybe it's that Derek wouldn't have made any more money as a world champ than he would have as Derek. But that's no excuse for not one promoter in this country 
and include Europe as well, the Sourlands, not one decided to give him a six-fight journey where he could fight for a world title. Sometimes he stumbled. I thought he beat Pulev. Um, the Hellenius result was a travesty. There were loads of things that got in his way, but I do believe he's a guy that in his career at some point he should have held. It's even a regular title. There's a belt he should have held. And he didn't because the belts have been held hostage. Since what, 2016, the belts have more or less been held hostage, right? And maybe this is a lesson where governing bodies need to just stop unifications. I'm, I'm now of that view that you should just commit to a governing body. Yeah? Commit to a governing body. If you win that title, cool. You want to win the other one? You got to go down, back up through the rankings to win that. No more unifications. I think that's the biggest change we need in boxing. Because this desire to unify and be undisputed, it just ties belts up and it slows everything down. I don't think, I don't think it works because... We've waited for this undisputed fight. Uh, so let's go back to the genesis. Fury beats Klitschko. We think he's going to unify with Wilder. He doesn't. Joshua then gets all of those belts Fury had. We think he's going to unify with Wilder. He doesn't. Wilder then drops out of the picture. Fury comes in. We think Joshua and Fury are going to unify these belts. They don't. This gets drawn out and drawn out and drawn out. Usyk now replaces Joshua. So now we've got a whole new cast of characters here. And we're still no more positive about this fight happening than we were right at the beginning of this process in 2015. We've waited seven years to, to crown one undisputed champion. And think of everything that hasn't happened because of that. The mandatories that have been parked and all this sort of stuff that hasn't happened. That's why we don't have any future stars coming through. Because everyone's been parked up in meaningless fights. So yeah, I am anti-unification and undisputed now. That's, that's, my, that's my message from the, from the whole Fury thing. But notwithstanding that, let's, let's also give credit to how the post-fight situation was handled. Now, I'm, I am confident that everything that happened post-fight was, was planned. I don't think it was planned to the matchroom level of detail, but it was planned. Usyk was always going to step on the apron. Maybe he's going to step in the ring. I don't know. And Joe was always going to show up. But that was entertaining because you could see Usyk was prepared for it because Usyk was trying not to laugh. Throughout that whole thing, Usyk was just trying not to break character. Because yes, he, he plays the, the dour, intense Ukrainian, but he speaks good English from what I've heard. He speaks good English. Enough to understand what Fury was saying. Enough to understand what Joyce was saying. You know, he's just playing a, what do you call it? The Mauricio Pochettino game on us. He's waiting till his English is perfect. And then one day he'll, he'll Canelo us, right? So they come out and Fury starts talking crazy. Joe gets on board and Joe goes to show he doesn't need the stupid Mexican hats and the salsa dancing and all those gimmicks. He just needs to be the damn juggernaut. Show up there, say, I'll fight any one of you two. And match the energy of the guys. I, th I think Joe's really stepped up now. He's, he's becoming an interesting character in the heavyweight division. So that little sequence, I thought, went better than if they had scripted it. Like they would have done at Matchroom. 
And then what's Fury done? Think about this. And Fury is honest. He said, no one ever calls out Joe Joyce. So I'm going to call him out. What does that do immediately? That elevates Joe because that clip would have done, let's just say it did 50 million views across social media in 24 hours. That's elevated Joe Joyce because people are like, who's this big lump that Fury's talking to? This is exactly how you keep money in the game. Tyson Fury knows he's top of the tree right now. He's giving that rub to Usyk. He's giving that rub to Joe Joyce in a way that Joshua never did. But you need that because that's what keeps money in. When, when Fury's saying this is the most avoided man in the game, you're now interested in Joe. Joe's now credible. Whoever Joe fights next has meaning. When he's like, I'll fight you next, Usyk, you're a small man. It's like, okay, you're a small man. How are you fighting this big six foot nine guy? Let me go and understand where this has come from. And immediately what you've done, you've created value. That's how you create value. You need that rub. And I wish more big name boxers did that. Mayweather did that. Look, look, what, look at what Mayweather's done in his career with guys like Broner and Devin Haney. He gave them that Mayweather rub, which got them to a certain level. Like, excuse me, Devin Haney was, he was a hardcore's favorite for a long time because he got that Mayweather rub. Now, the best example of that will always be Kareem Mayfield. And if you, for those of you who don't remember the story, they were asking who Mayweather would fight next. And people thought he'd fight Pacquiao next because he'd been seen sparring Southpaws. And I think he said, no, do you know what? At the moment, my head is telling me I should fight Kareem Mayfield. I think he only said it once, ever. And Kareem Mayfield was the most Google term in that 24-hour period. And the best thing about that was, I don't know if Kareem Mayfield had been warned that this was coming. But as soon as he was asked, he said, yeah, I'm in camp now. I'm ready for Floyd. Anytime he wants to call me, man, we're ready to go. And I admire him for that. Cause I don't think Kareem Mayfield fought again after that, but just that's how you give someone a rub. And that doesn't happen very often. So credit to Tyson Fury for doing that. Um, things that, that I was less happy with is that stupid behind the scenes thing that happens where they eat these stupid burgers and just talk nonsense. But I don't, that doesn't give me an added dimension. What it does is it makes me think that most of the stuff is staged because I'm like, I want to see guys who don't like each other jump in the ring. And when the fight's done, you ain't going to sit there eating burgers with each other. I don't believe Frotch and Groves would have eaten burgers. I don't believe Ben and Eubank could eat burgers now. Never mind back then. You know, Nigel Ben and Rod Douglas weren't going to be sat there eating burgers. And it's this kind of emasculation of combat sports where you can't be a horrible guy anymore. And what's, what that actually does is it takes money out of the game because you're normalizing what should be the extraordinary. And you don't want to ever do that. These guys should be seen as freaks, one-offs, guys you wouldn't want to bump into in a dark alley. That's what they should be. And then when they retire, they can show us all of this side, eat the burgers, do whatever you want once you've retired, but... In that moment, no, you've got to have that thing of, whew, I wouldn't want to upset him. Which we didn't get. That's a real shame. But kudos, right? I don't know if all 60,000 tickets were sold out. I can tell you that I saw people with stacks of tickets trying to sell them. And like thicker than, 
thicker than the yellow pages. That's what sort of stack we're talking about. So I don't believe that they were being sold. I think a lot of them were given away. But if you told me that they sold 40,000 tickets, I'd believe that. If you told me they sold 45,000, I'd believe that. But I do think a large number were given away. But then they, were, they aren't matchroom shows. If you're a firefighter, you're probably at uh, one of Eddie Hearn's shows. Do you mean if you're a policeman, you're probably there too? It's a good way to keep people on side. So, so let's not criticize Frank. He put on a hell of an event. We never thought Frank could do stadium shows. Frank's done two stadium shows this year. And they're every bit as good as a matchroom show. Frank's done that. I'm going to give Frank his title back, man. Mr. Saturday Night. Frank's done that. Now, I think there are a lot of hangers on. And if you, ever, if you saw that behind the scenes video with Fury and Chisora eating the burgers, look at how many people were there. And you're like, what the hell do all these people do? It's something I've never understood. Like, I'll go behind the scenes. I'll go backstage for my friends only. Like we'll sit in the change room together, have a laugh and a joke, but we have to have a deep relationship for that to, to make sense. Excuse me. Um, example. When Dan Aziz fights for a world title, will I sneak back, back, back there? Of course, I'll sit in the change rooms with Dan, but I've known Dan a long time. And I'll sneak in there because I want to soak that moment in with him because we talked about it in 2013 or whenever. Same with Denzel. Yeah? These things, they're deep. Isaac Chamberlain as well. But am I just going to walk into a Joshua changing room to just be part of that? No, because I don't need to. But I saw the usual suspects sniffing around. You know where they're just there, like, just so they can tell people they were there. The usual suspects every time that never show up when you're struggling, but they show up when the lights are on. It's always sad to see. You know, but kudos to Frank. That was a good, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he helmed a good show there. He should be proud of himself, quite rightly. And he's having a good run now. Think about this. We had all the real heavyweight talk happen on Saturday night. And Eddie Hearn wasn't involved. And AJ wasn't involved. We didn't even wonder where they were. Because we had, we had the three guys that we wanted. And the fourth one, Deontay Wilder, we knew he could do business with anyone in that ring. It's crazy to think Eddie Hearn is not relevant in the heavyweight picture right now. And may not be for a long time. You remember when he was the guy that was saying that the heavyweight division is in the UK. If you're not here... You're not part of the heavyweight division. This is where the money is. If you want to get paid, you come here, earn with earn. That's all gone. And you look at his stable and you go, right, take Joshua and Canelo out of it. What, what certified killers has he got? Bam Rodriguez, I'll, I'll grant you that, but that, that's a bag of sugar weight, really, isn't it? You know, who else? Uh, they talk about this Diego Pacheco, Pacheco, bag of sugar weight. You know, great. Who else? 
The decline of Matchroom has been unbelievable. To the point where they're even having to, to sue Lawrence to say, no, we need you to stay. You can't just leave. Well, you think we've got that kind of talent that we can just be letting people go. This is full crisis mode. It's an existential crisis for Matchroom because now Eddie's got to ask himself, what am I? Am I a promoter who's going to build generation after generation of global stars? Or am I a mouthpiece? Am I a service that people plug into to amplify whatever profile they have? He's tried to do both and he's shown that he can't do both. So which one is it for Eddie Hearn? I think that's the question he's got to answer for Matchroom because their stable's weak. You look at Frank and Frank's just moved so many chess pieces so carefully. With so much thought. You look and you go, right, okay, he's got Fury over there. He's got Dubois. He's got Joyce. He holds meaningful pieces in the heavyweight picture. He's got Anthony Yard here. A meaningful presence in the light heavyweight division. Carol Talma, who will be a meaningful presence in the, light, in the light heavyweight division. He's got that. He's got Denzel, who will be a middleweight factor. And then he's got his clutch of welterweights as well. He's also got guys like Sam Noakes who are really coming through. Archie Sharp, who's, I mean, in position to fight for a world title. Suddenly Frank's there going, yeah, I chilled, I plotted, and I came back stronger. And if you look at what Frank's doing this time, he's building the other wave with guys like Dennis McCann. He's like, we ain't finished yet. You know, I know he wants to do that work with David Adelaide, but there are better heavyweights you could invest in. Not saying that David's not that good but there were guys who were more decorated and even David would admit that so if there, there, there's more room to grow there Frank could probably grow his cruiserweight presence if he chose to but broadly speaking in the classic weight divisions Frank's really really strong he's got that top ranked link up with Bob Arum very smart man and it goes to show you can be flashy with all the new technology and your flashy suits and your Dolce & Gabbana and your Versace, this, that, and the third. But sometimes you've just got to know how this game truly works. And Frank does. So right now, this is Frank's moment. It won't last forever. It never does because these things go in cycles. But right now, we've got to say Frank's, Frank's driving British boxing in a way that Eddie's not. Like, you know, you, know, you guys are just going to realize on this podcast that Warrington's fighting this weekend. Who, who really cares? If it's not Lara, we don't care. If it's not Santa Cruz, we don't care. And Eddie can't seem to get these fights over the line. And that's the, the damning indictment of Eddie Hearn right now. So one of the questions I will get asked, so I just want to deal with it now because it saves loads of DMs and having to respond. How do I see Fury versus Usyk going? I just see it being very one-sided. I'm going to explain why. Most boxers have a box of scenarios and moves that they go to, right? In situation X, do Y. Loma has it, and most people couldn't figure out what Lomas were. And I always think that the art to, to destabilize and greatness is to understand those patterns and to break them. And I don't believe anyone's better at that than Fury. Fury knows what you want to do in a fight, and he stops you doing it. So with, if you look at Usyk, Usyk wants space and room to move, right? Always. Do you think Fury's going to let him do that? No. So Fury will work out where 
Usyk's key exits are, and he'll just shut those down. He'll have Usyk against the ropes, like he did with Wilder, and he'll gamble that Usyk can't fight off the ropes. And then we'll all find out Usyk has a really limited skill set. And so round after round, Fury will just drag Usyk down until Usyk has to just fight. And yes, Usyk will lose, but we will respect Usyk for having that real fighting spirit. And that will be when we find out how tough Usyk really is. But this idea that a man as small as Usyk is going to outskill and outmaneuver Tyson Fury, it's just ridiculous. Like I said, Fury's too smart to, to let Usyk rely on what he normally relies on. So if there's a whole secret skill set that Usyk's been working on that we don't know about, cool. I want to see that. And if he does that, then he'd be one of the all-time greats. But when I compare him to someone like a Holyfield, one thing I always respected about Holyfield was he was competitive with people who were meant to be better than him. Not just bigger, not just stronger, were meant to be better than him. He was competitive with Lennox. He was competitive with Mike Tyson. He was competitive with Riddick Bowe. He always found a way to be competitive with his opposition. We've seen Usyk in against people he's better than. We haven't seen him in with someone who's better than him. This will be the first time we see Usyk in with someone that's better than him. And I have a feeling he'll be found wanting. Yes, six foot nine, 19 and a half stone with skill and intelligence and mobility isn't to be laughed at. Like, how are you going to put a dent in that to keep him off you? You're not. And you're not going to be able to run forever because all Fury has to do is step to his left and throw a backhand. It's just, it's an absolute, yeah. I just think it's one-sided. To be honest, I think it's incredibly one-sided. That would be my assessment of that whole fight. Just aware that I'm half an hour in, man. I've got to get motoring covering all of these topics. Uh, should touch on Daniel Dubois, shouldn't we? Fight that was supposed to be just a routine defense um, against a blown up cruiserweight. How the hell Lorena passes UCAD is beyond me. If he actually did pass UCAD because he went from cruiserweight to, was it, 230 something pounds? And he, yeah, he, he looked. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying he looked like he took the whole bottle of hot sauce and put it in the pot. He just cooked with it. But that was an interesting fight because it told us nothing about Daniel Dubois that we didn't already know. Maybe apart from he was able to overcome adversity. He found something in himself, which I guess later on in his career will be valuable. But I think as Daniel moves up in level, he might need to go back to old Daniel. And what made Dubois a nightmare when we were watching him coming up as a kid it was that he was a combination puncher. He wasn't just a one-two merchant. I mean, you were literally seeing one-two, left hook to the body, left hook to the head, or he might throw a jab, left uppercut, right hook, left hook, straight right. He was throwing punches that had people confused. And as he's been in different environments, they've almost taken that part away from him. But I don't think he, he won't dominate unless he goes back to that, because that's where he's most comfortable. And that's a point of difference because most heavyweights don't train to deal with combination punches. You know, in this fight, what you saw was a guy get knocked down. I think he took a knee a couple of times. 
reset, regroup, and then just start hitting the smaller man. Lorena hadn't been hit like that before, and definitely not that consistently in 10-ounce gloves. And you can see he felt it. Uh, you can see it was a shock to his system. Um, people say that it shouldn't have been stopped when it was, but there was, a, there was an uppercut that went in there that literally lifted his neck and twisted it. And I was like, if he takes any more of those in the next round, he won't be the same man again. So I think the stoppage happening when it did, kudos to him. Uh, these stoppages are hard because one person's stoppages, another person's carry on. My view is just if you're in danger and it's not a fight that you can win, yeah, just take the stoppage. I don't, I don't see why people get so precious about it. Just take the damn stoppage. And then people are moaning that the bell went, was it, they say nine seconds early? And I've always wondered this. Who's the official timekeeper in a fight? Because do the people at the board get access to the TV clock or do they have their own clock? Because if so, what, what, what's the point of that clock? That, that's the thing I don't understand. So I don't know. Like I'd have to time to see if the round was actually three minutes long. But I've always wondered how those clocks sync up. Because, yeah, I find it weird that someone at the board, a timekeeper, would ever get the timing of a round wrong. It might just be that us as fans, we just saw it differently. I don't know. But in terms of Dubois, not a routine defense, but also a routine defense, right? Be a guy he was supposed to be. Now he's just there waiting, right? Because they're waiting for that WBA mandatory to be called. Hopefully he'll get that in the next year or so. But let's get through undisputed first. Um, you'd like to feel that if those belts were vacated post-undisputed, then Dubois would be fighting for the super champion. We just get upgraded and get rid of the damn regular belt. But one of the things I will say is, I saw a lot of stuff online saying Dubois is not the guy we thought he was. And I'm like, he is. I mean, he's, he's a guy that does a lot of damage, but he's also vulnerable. They're the best kinds of heavyweights. Just like Joshua is. Joshua's a big lump who can do a lot of damage, but he's vulnerable. It's why we watch, because we don't know what's going to happen. We know someone's going to get hurt. We don't know who. And that's what makes it eminently enjoyable. In terms of the rest of the card, what else did I see? Good to see Hosea Burton winning a cruiserweight. Is he a real cruiserweight? We're going to find out, because he should have done that years ago. You'd like to see Hosea Burton walking around at least 15 and a half stone. That's what he should be walking around at and then just boil down to cruiserweight. And he should have done that a while ago because, yeah, he in his last light heavyweight fight, he looked terrible just from cutting all that weight. So hopefully this is a nice Indian summer to his career and a nice swan song, you know, in the cruiserweight division. He's talking about fighting for the British against Mikel Lawal. Uh, maybe not that one first. Um, I don't know who, who would you put him in with at cruiser to just test the waters. That's a hard one because by British level, world level, even a Billum Smith is hard work for Jose Burton until he solidifies at the weight. And then maybe his skills will come to bear and his power will come to bear. But until then, just let him have a few fights while he adjusts to the weight. But happy to see him back in the game because he's one of boxing's good guys. So for balance, I think is also 
right that we let's let's delve into the matchroom card in Glendale, Arizona. Not a place I ever thought Eddie Hearn would want to promote, but such has been his decline since the zone deal that I mean, <laughs> he's having to treat that like his Madison Square Garden. So didn't see much of it, but of what I did see, uh, Chocolatito Estrada three. I stand by this when I say those aren't main events to me. That's a that's a chief support. That's the sort of fight you want on, on a pay per view card. You'd have that under a Canelo versus Bivol two, if you see what I mean. And you'd have that, and then you sort of build your card around that. But compelling fight. Uh, I think at thirty five, you can see Chocolatito is not what he used to be, but. That's not to disrespect what Estrada did. Because if you see what Estrada did for probably the first seven rounds, boxed beautifully going backwards, not even off the back foot, which is different. He was boxing going backwards, able to to pick off Chocolatito as he was coming in. And then as the fight moved into the second half, you start to see Estrada really start to work on the body with that sort of, you, know, you see, jab, left hook to the body, left uppercut, left hook to the head all these sorts of things that he could do. And he showed that he's a boxer probably, if he's not at the peak, he's at that at the end of that golden window when you're at your physical and mental peak. And you can see Chocolatito's a few years beyond that. But entertaining fight. You want to see two guys scrap and just keep that pressure on each other? That's exactly what you got there. So that was a good fight. Do you want to see a fourth fight? No. I just think, Chocolatito's not going to get any better and I don't think Estrada's going to drop off enough in the next couple of years for that to be a viable fight. So I, 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 I say leave that trilogy. It feels like the right sort of trilogy. I think two and three probably came too close to each other. And here's a lesson we need to learn about these trilogies. You've got to space them out because I like to see trilogies when guys fight early in their career. Then maybe they fight at their peak and then maybe they fight at the tail end. You know, that, that's kind of what gives Chisora Fury its kind of balance because they fought when they were both up and coming. There was a time when Chisora was the man and Fury was on the way up. And then in the third fight, Chisora's, I don't want to say on the way up, but you know Fury is the man on top. And so I don't mind trilogies that way. I just wish it had been a trilogy that was closer in ability. In fact, I'd like to see Delboy, and I didn't touch on this earlier, but I don't want him to retire because I don't think it's my place to tell Derek to retire. But if Derek's going to carry on, he has to fight people who I think are his level. So I wouldn't mind seeing him in with like a Brian Jennings, for example, uh, a Michael Hunter. Do you know guys who aren't too tall? Guys who have to stay there with him and work with him. I think that that's when we'd see the best of Derek. I think those fights will give his career longevity while still keeping him economically viable. But if he, see, if he keeps going in with these sort of top four, top five guys, I don't think it ends well for him, short term and long term. But no, that, yeah, matchroom card, it was just, like I say, man, bag of sugar weight guys, wasn't it? Just small guys. Apart from that Diego Pacheco, who's huge. What's he, a 6'4", 6'5"? And he fought, who, they call him Tyson Luna, don't they? Just blitzed the guy. Second round, just absolutely blitzed him. And what I like about Pacheco is, how accurate he is, doesn't waste a shot. And he's not afraid to lead with a left uppercut, something we don't do in this country. So he backs his speed such that he can just get in with that left uppercut, cause havoc, and then he creates an opening for the right hand. We don't teach that in this country because we say everything off the jab. And that's true to an extent, but sometimes you've just got to break the format in order to 
discombobulate your opponent. But I thought that was a that was an okay card. It's kind of where Eddie is right now with the zone, isn't it? You know, he's going to do Glendale, Arizona. This weekend, what's he doing? He's doing Leeds. At the moment, he's not the big ticket guy. He's not the guy that's going to do the biggest fights in the world. And that's some fall from grace because you kind of you kind of thought matching were unassailable. Do you remember that video where he was like, what was it? You go and knock Anthony Joshua out. End Eddie Hearn. End me. End me. And that's now looking like the ultimate act of hubris because he has been ended and he's been ended by everyone else in boxing working together to say, we're going to just shut him out. And at no point has Eddie had the self-awareness to go, maybe I need to be different. If I'm really doing what's best for my fighters, maybe I need to be different. It hasn't occurred to him yet. So now you see him in the media disrespecting everyone. He's become that bitter guy that he used to make fun of when he was you know, in possession of all the key belts. It's cringe. And we forget the guy's nearly 44. You know, he, this is a guy in his mid-40s. He's middle-aged. He's running around trying to dress like he's 21 years old. But the problem he's got with that is he never strikes you as a guy who was cool growing up because he wears it all wrong. You know the people who have always been fashionable, always been into fashion, always been stylish, right? And no matter how old they get, they always know how to put stuff together because they've refined the formula. Because Eddie just copies and pastes of whatever someone else is doing, it always looks really awkward, doesn't it? He just looks like... I don't even know how to describe it. He looks like that awkward kid who ends up trying to hang out with the cool kids. And you can just tell who he is because everything's just that little 5% off. And here he is taking shots at guys like Bob Arum, Shelley Finkel, Al Heyman, you know, guys who are delivering for their own fighters. Meanwhile, he's struggling to deliver for his. He couldn't deliver for Lawrence, that's for sure. And we still don't know who AJ's fighting. I don't know why that takes so long. If you're the most powerful promoter in the world, if you are the global promoter, why is it taking so long to establish who AJ's going to fight next? I'm just conscious of time. Let's just do a quick, quick 360 around what's happening in the world of boxing. Crawford said something interesting. So Terence Crawford has been, where was he? Was he on the Boxing Voice? And he said he'd love to fight Crawford in London, which initially I was like, what the hell? Until it dawned on me. If Terence Crawford and Errol Spence fight, it doesn't sell out Vegas. It'll probably do Madison Square Garden, right? But Madison Square Garden's pretty small. And even then, that, that's a lot of selling. You could do Crawford versus Spence here. Every boxing fan's buying a ticket. That will sell out. Now, who you get to organize it would be an interesting question. Because it would have to be on Sky. But does Crawford have the same relationship with Bob Arum that would enable that to happen? Because Sky and Top Rank have a partnership. If it happened on BT, would it be the same sort of fight? I don't know. It definitely needs that Sky Sports bump to get it through. But I love the idea of two guys, like the two best in their division, giving us an undisputed fight, finally, after being sat here waiting years for one to happen between two Brits, right? 
then it turns out two Americans would do it. I think that fight makes perfect sense in the UK. I think they'd make all the money they'd want to make just having it in the UK, even with no US TV. But I'd love that in London. Yep. And I'd happily pay for the privilege. That's the sort of fight that you're not even trying to stream because you're like, you're giving us what we want. So let's see how that fight develops. But that is fascinating. If, if there's a real appetite to do that in the UK, then it just shows that we do have the best fans in the world. You also know how to talk about the, the Yad Baturbi of head-to-head and sort of the media rounds that those guys have been doing. Great to have Baturbi in the UK. He, I want Yad to win because obviously, you know, I've known him a long time, but God, that's a hard fight because Yad needs time and space to do his best work. And like he, he relies on timing. Well, what Baturbi does is he denies you that. And he denies you that just with that pressure he puts on in heavy hands as well. I think it will be different to Kovalev. So when Kovalev fought Yard, he did a lot of good work behind the jab. But in doing so, he gave Yard opportunities to, to counter which Yard likes. Because Yard can make you miss. If you're, if you're single-shotting Anthony Yard, his athleticism and reflexes will make you miss. And then you'll eat that right hand left hook. So Baturbi is different. Where Kovalev uses his jab to establish control... Baturbiev will use his feet. And that means that he's always there. Cuts down your thinking time. She cuts down your reflex time. Now you've got to fight. I'm not saying Yard can't fight. I'm saying, wow, what a, what a way to find out if you can fight at an elite level. Good luck to him. I, I think it would be amazing for boxing if Anthony Yard did that. And that would propel him to sort of fury levels of fame because that's a legit world title win. There's no question about that if he pulls it off and we, we should want him to pull it off for the love of, for the love of Britain. We want him to pull it off. The downside is it would take 32 seconds within yard winning for her to be, why doesn't he fight Joshua Boatze? That That's it. That's all you would hear. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll offer yard a million and a half to fight Joshua Boatze. Yeah. I wish the board could just sanction him and say, mate, just stop tweeting for a year. No IFL interviews, no tweeting for a year. I'd love that. If he just had to focus on making fights and being a promoter, yeah, actually delivering cards that fans want and actually delivering value for DAZN who actually give him the money. Interesting aside to the whole Yard Baturbiev thing is I think the plan is for the winner to fight Callum Smith anyway. So we'd have a domestic dust-up if that's what we want, right? poses the question why wouldn't you just have Callum Smith against Boatsy in the interim why wouldn't Eddie do that when he was the one who was saying you know people shouldn't be waiting for world title shots that may not materialize but I think that's the plan right so whoever wins this has to fight Callum Smith before they can fight for the undisputed fight but as I said earlier scatter the belts don't necessarily care about unified and undisputed anymore it doesn't mean anything it just means people are tactically acquiring and harvesting belts in a way that is killing the sport. Like, how the hell is Jerome Ennis fighting for an interim IBF title? Spencer's available. Do you mean, like, why, why, why are the IBF doing an... In- There's an IBF interim belt because we're waiting for an undisputed fight. We already know who the two main guys are. Do we really need to be holding the belts hostage this long? 
Um, who else is holding belts? I don't know if, if, if Baby Child is holding belts hostage as well, but a lot of people are doing this. Canelo is doing it. And all this does is cut down the number of fights that we can watch. That's all this does. And that's why I said the sooner we get away from these unified and undisputed fights, the better. But here's the weird thing in all of this. As much as Baturbiev side have talked about fighting Smith next, the rumors are Callum Smith will be fighting Lyndon Arthur next. This is what I mean about the belts, man. It causes chaos. We don't know who, what the path for succession is now. But uh, no, if we get Smith versus Arthur as a warm-up, then so be it, man. May the best man win in that one. Um, as I keep saying, like Lyndon Arthur in the media, think he's a, he's a good talker. Him and Sonny Edwards are good talkers and they bounce well off each other. So I can see them having a, a media career. But I wonder what it will be like as they get older. Because you know, as you get older, your, your desire to be funny kind of diminishes whoever you are. You just become more serious because there's just more to lose as you get older. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But right now, those two are definitely doing their thing. Um, what else happened this weekend? Ah, oh, the cringe stuff between Michaela May and Alicia Baumgartner. Ah. Oh. I I always had the view when it came to Michaela Mayer that there was a lot of window dressing. I didn't think she was as good as people were telling me she was. You know, I thought she was overlooked for a long time and I wish she had been given the fights earlier. We would have just realized we were wasting our time. But just seeing how she's been since she lost to Bam Gardner, cringeworthy. And it, I guess it shows that this was all kind of attempt to, to bag what she could as quickly as she could. And, you know, get the belts before she had to fight Baumgartner. But now, you know, who's even interested in Michaela Mayer anymore? She had a chance in the limelight and she seemed to freeze. So I, not that bothered. They dragged her here so many times. You saw her partying with people like Michelle Joy Phelps and whoever. You saw that. For what? Because she's a reasonably attractive boxer with blonde hair. Like, come on, man. Like, we've got to move past this and start respecting people who can actually fight. <sighs> yeah, what have we missed? Rest in peace, Mills Lane. Um, most people know Mills Lane as a guy who disqualified Mike Tyson against Evander Holyfield. That's gonna be like twenty-five years ago now. And yeah, but maybe the most controversial thing we've seen a referee do in a long, long time. I remember living through that and the amount of controversy that <clears throat> that caused. People saying that Tyson should be banned for life. This, that, and the third, but. I think from that point on, I don't necessarily think Tyson could sink much lower. And like, look, look at how he's turned his life around to the point where him and Evander can make fun of over that now. Now, now the, the ear biting thing is just the stuff for comedy and good humor. What else has been happening? Um, the gossip seems to be that Canelo's going to fight John Ryder May next year. <laughs> that's not a comeback for her, is it? And if that's the reason why they had to push Tank versus Ryan Garcia into April, then that's a real pity because that's a bigger fight for Cinco de Mayo. And putting Canelo in with, with a John Ryder, waste of time. Right? Waste of time. And they'll put that on pay-per-view. You have to watch that nonsense on pay-per-view. You know, I just, yeah. Matchroom are struggling, aren't they? Eddie Hearn is really, really struggling because everyone else has fights that are popping off. So Tank Ryan Garcia happens without Eddie Hearn. 
both guys are going to fight in January. Then we're going to get the fight in April. Fantastic. You know, Ryan Garcia's just talking the hardest at the moment. Like he says, you know what I mean? I'll fight everyone at 135. And he believes that he stops Crawford at 147. Whew. Wow. Be a hell of a fight though. But I, I like this. I like people putting names out there. That's what boxing needs. Put names out there. But Terbiev say he'd love to fight Usyk. Put names out there. Fury saying he'll fight Joyce. Put fucking names out there. Because I've said before, that's when the fans get excited. That's when the fans really go, okay, cool. I know what's coming. But that's a real struggle. You know, we've got Crawford fighting Avanesian this weekend. Who's talking about it? Nobody. Which is a shame. But that's what happens when you don't reward the fans with what they want. People just switch off. I'd like to say I hope 2023 gives us more, but I have a feeling that it won't. I will, we will always be disappointed as boxing fans because everyone tries to squeeze the most out of each fight. No one thinks about paying it forward. Sometimes you've got to have a fight today, which may be more lucrative a year from now, but you have the fight today and two years from now, it gives you a massive rematch. You've just got to have a business head on. And I don't think these guys do. Uh, probably close off by saying big congratulations to Nina Hughes for signing with Matchroom. Absolutely crazy. 40 years old. You're wondering if you should ever box again. And now you're, you're signed to Matchroom and being lined up for Ebony Bridges, which will be a hell of a fight, by the way. Yeah, so that's one thing I'm definitely looking forward to. But on that note, I'm going to sign off and go and recover because I am absolutely cooked. But as always, guys, look, appreciate you listening. And feel free to share this, you know, like, retweet, all that good stuff because that's how this podcast grows. We've grown every year since we started. Let's hope 2023 is the same, but I need you guys to help that. And it's always appreciated. Take care.